Please turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 9. Many years ago, I was painting the side of my garage on my house in Florida. And I was painting right next to a hibiscus plant when I heard the phone ring in the house. So I ran inside to answer the phone. And as I was talking on the phone, I happened to just look out the window to admire my work, my paint job, right? And as I was looking at my work, I happened to look down at the sidewalk, and there came about a six-foot black indigo snake, about three inches in diameter, crawling up the sidewalk, right? And then slithered, no, slithered, under the hibiscus plant. I sat there kind of with my mouth dropped in shock, thinking, oh my word, what would have happened if I hadn't have been looking out the window? Because I was getting ready to hang up the phone, go out and continue painting, right? Right next to the hibiscus plant. And what would have happened? That six-foot snake would have jumped out and I would have died, right there. <laughs> I would have died. But worse than that, but worse than that, can you imagine being surrounded by poisonous snakes and they're all trying to bite you? I, I know some of you have had that dream before, and I don't call it a dream, I call it a nightmare, right? But the people of God went through this. They actually went through this in the wilderness. Well, let's, let's read about that. It's in Numbers 21, and we'll look at verse 4 through 9. This is the word of God. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on the standard. And it came about that if a a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent he lived 
Now, prior to this, you all know the story. In Numbers 13, the people of God send out spies into the land, into the promised land, to see what the promised land looked like, right? So they send 12 spies. Ten of them come back with a bad report. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back with a good report. The good report was, and the good report from everybody was, the land is wonderful. It is overflowing with milk and honey. It is a glorious land. You know, we need to go there, right? But then the ten spies said, but there are giants in the land. And there is no way we're going to take this land. Joshua and Caleb said, we can take it because God says we can. So we need to believe God, right? And go into the land. But the people were fearful. They didn't walk by faith. They didn't trust Joshua and Caleb's report. They trusted the ten, so they didn't go. And so God disciplines his people. And we see that here in this text. Because in verse 4, they head away from the promised land into the desert to go around Edom. Now, this desert region was desert, you know? Lack of vegetation, uh, sandy soil, drifts of granite, other stones, and terrible sandstorms. Remember the news stuff from Desert Storm? Well, that's the area where they were headed, okay? Um, and the people became, became impatient with their circumstances. And they start complaining and grumbling against God and Moses. They grumbled about the desert. They grumbled about their lack of food and water. And here's the amazing thing. They grumbled about the manna. Now, to me, I, you know, manna, God provided them manna every day. If they didn't get manna, they would have died, right? Day one, well, day three probably, maybe longer than that. But they would have died. God provided manna every day and double portion before the Sabbath, right? Provided for them by grace. And they called this manna miserable food. Wow. So what does God do? In response to their grumbling, he disciplines his people. He spanks them. He sends fiery serpents as a way of disciplining them. And the literal name for this is burning snakes. Burning snakes. And they were called that because of their burning bite, which filled their victim with heat and poison. God takes the natural and he encases it with the supernatural by bringing this group of snakes. What do you call a group of snakes? A herd? A flock? A covey? I don't know. But he brings this group of snakes to this one place, sort of like with Noah. Remember all the animals came to one place? Well, I don't think he made the snakes. He brought the snakes to one place where they would discipline his people. And after being bitten and some of the people dying, the people repent. The people repent. 
And God tells Moses then, make a serpent, a bronze serpent, and put it up on a pole and hold it before the people so that if they look up to the serpent, they will live. Isn't that a cool story? And what's the amazing thing is, this is written thousands of years before Christ, right? And then Jesus takes this story and uses it in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus about about, um, a regenerate heart. Listen to what he says in John 3, 14. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Wow. The story in Numbers 21 is used as a picture of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's Word is inspired. It's written 2,000 years before Christ, this story. And then Jesus uses it here in John 3. So let's look at the similarities between these two stories. And the first thing that I want to look at is man's sickness. Man's sickness. Those who have been bitten in numbers by the fiery serpent had contracted a sickness unto death. The poison was in their system and there was no stopping its detrimental effects. And each one of us today has been bitten by a serpent. And the effects of the bite can be seen in each one of us who are born in sin. Now, our culture says, no, nobody's born in sin. Our culture says everybody's either born good or we're born neutral. We're born tabula rasa, means blank slate. You're born with a blank slate, and if you're born into a bad environment, you might pick up bad stuff. If you're born with good parents and a good upbringing, you'll turn into a good person. That's what our culture believes. But it's overlooking, it's overlooking the obvious evidence that is contrary to the fact. When we adopted um, Jilly 24 years ago, wow, um, 24 years ago when we adopted Jilly and we came here 24 years ago, um, I kiddingly told everybody that Jilly missed out on original sin. Um, and she was in the nursery one day. I think she was around, it was a few months after we got here. Maybe, probably eight months after. She's about two years old. She was in the nursery. And guess what my little angel of a child that didn't have original sin do? You know what she did? She took a chunk out of another kid's cheek. She left teeth marks. You know, uh, Denise said, get, get your, uh, she probably kiddingly, get your uh, resume ready, right? Um, and guess who it was? It was Michael Ann Settle. It was, they've been friends ever since. So it was love at first bite, right? 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was, a, that was what you call a good dad joke, right? Well, we are not born good. You know, your, your, your child's first word is usually what? Not dada, like last week. It's no or mine, right? We are not born good. We are born in original sin, and our children are evidence of the fact because they do things bad naturally, like bite other kids, and they don't do good things unless they're trained an awful lot. So what is the solution to being snake-bitten? What is the solution for, for the Hebrews? For the Hebrews in the wilderness, Moses' solution was to look at this snake on a pole. Now, can you imagine having people dying all around you and these snakes all around you, they're you know, biting people, and then Moses walks out there with this snake on a pole and he says, hey, everybody, look at the snake on a pole and believe and that'll do it. You know what? I bet you there are a few Israelis that thought Moses had been in the sun too long, that Moses needed an umbrella or a hat or something, right? I remember years ago, I went on a camp out. Um, I went on a camp out. I was around 12 years old. And it was a local church right around the corner from me. And I guess it was some kid that was a friend asked me to go because we were Episcopalians and we didn't go on camp outs with churches. We, you know, we were very formal. Um, and so I went on this camp out. And it was great because it was on the beach. It was the weekend, Friday night. They had a bonfire going and everything, hot dogs cooking, you know, and all this. And then all of a sudden, some guy comes out and starts preaching and pointing to the fire and saying, that's where I'm going to go if I don't believe in Jesus, right? A place like that. And I, I, it scared me to death. So I went home the next day and I told my mom, she looked at me and she goes, none of us were believers at the time, and she looked at me and she goes, Mark, they're crazy. They're crazy. So I said, good, good. And that's what probably some of the Israelis thought when, when, when uh, Moses brings out this pole, right? They thought, let's figure out a solution instead of looking at a pole. Let's figure out something better. So they may have thought of, hey, let's go help the people that have been snake bitten. Let's, uh, let's suck out the poison. Let's take care of their needs. Let's uh, start a snake killing society and kill all the snakes. And the one who kills the most snakes will be right with God, right? Or let's, uh, let's stop grumbling and complaining. And every, if we grumble and complain no more, then God will forgive us. You know what? Many times in this world, we do the same thing, don't we? When facing our own sin. We try to find a solution instead of believing in God's solution. I remember years ago, I was preaching the gospel to a, to a, a relative. And after going for about a half an hour, I said, basically, you need to repent and believe. Believe in Jesus. And she just looked at me, and she shook her head, 
and she said, Mark, that's too easy. That's just too easy. I, I've got to do something. It, it can't be that easy. You know, the scriptures say this. It says that the gospel to the Jews is a stumbling block and to the Greeks is foolishness. And we agree with them when we try to find our own solution to our sickness of sin. What are our solutions? Sometimes we try to clean up our act before God. We try not to live immorally. We try to go to church and not miss it. We give to worthy causes. We tithe. We help the poor, the needy, the orphans. We do the, help the widows. We do social work. And all of these things are fine endeavors. But they will never change the sinful nature that you're born with. Nothing will change the sinful nature that you're born with by trying to live a moral life. It kind of um, reminds me of times I've talked to people in counseling and told them, if you could put your life on a number line and say number one is the worst you could be and number ten is perfection, where are you on the number line? And they'll usually go around six. And I'll say, then what does God require for you to get to heaven? And they'll usually say six, you know, because that's where they're living at. Uh, and I'll look at them for a second, and then I'll say, do you know what God requires for you to get to heaven? He requires you to have a ten. He requires you to be perfect. And they just look at me for a minute, and then and they say, well, that's impossible. And, and that's the point. It is impossible. It's impossible for any person because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot change our nature by trying to live a good life. It's like trying to change your sin nature is like a pig trying to become a cat. You know, I always tell you about Ladybug, our cat. Um, Ladybug has got to be the cleanest cat in the world because she is constantly cleaning. And if you've ever seen our cat, Ladybug, she has the whitest fur. I mean, it is, it's like snow. She's so clean. Um, can you imagine telling a pig to become like a cat? You know, clean yourself all the time. Do you think you could do that? Do you think you could get a pig to do that? I think you can. You know, I think you could give a pig enough treats to start cleaning itself, right? And to spray it off first with a hose and then to start cleaning itself if you give it enough treats. But guess what? Once you stop feeding that pig, what's it going to do? It's going to go back to the pigsty. And we are just like the pig. Because we will, even if we try to clean up our act, no matter how hard we try to be like a cat, we end up like a pig because we go back to our sin nature. So what is a person to do? 
Luke 18, 27 says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So what is God's solution? Well, what is God's solution for the snake-bitten Jew? To look at the bronze serpent that's on the pole. It wasn't man's strength to just look. It was not, though, man, even if he had poor eyesight, even if he looked, even if he, it was blurry, as long as he looked, he would be healed. And the same thing takes place in John 3, 14 and 15. If you want to be saved from the disease of sin, then you must look away from yourself. You must look away from your own solutions. And you must look to the Son of Man who is lifted up on the cross, who is lifted up in the resurrection and glorification. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's not the strength of your repentance or your resolve not to sin. It's the one who is lifted up, Jesus Christ, who saves you. And how did he do that? How did he do that? Jesus, while on this earth, lived a perfect life. You know, that, if, if, if that, that amazes me. Because when I think back on my life, and I think back on my teenage years, and years after that, and, and that Jesus in his teenage years, and his 20s, never sinned at all, that amazes me. And he did that for you. And he did that for me. And, and I didn't deserve it. And you didn't deserve it. He lived a perfect life so that when you put your faith in him, that perfect record is put to your account who doesn't deserve it. And then all of your sins, past, present, and future, were put upon Christ by faith. So that think about this. The judgment that was meant for you in hell for all eternity was poured out upon Christ instead of you. That is amazing grace. And how do you receive that forgiveness? By looking away from yourself and looking up to the Son of Man who was lifted up. In closing, I, I want to read to you a testimony. And it, it's a testimony of Charles Spurgeon. Um, Charles Spurgeon, in the 1800s, was known as the Prince of Preachers. Okay? And his preaching, thousands of people became believers through his preaching. And so listen to this testimony of how he became a believer and how the amazing grace of God in working in his life. The day was January 6, 1850, and C.H. Spurgeon was 16 years old, and he said this, I sometimes think 
I might have been in darkness and in despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place to worship. When I could get no further because of the snow, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people or so. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And it was Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. It says, look. Now looking doesn't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year, and he is able to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. But then the text says this, look unto me, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourself. Some look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating with great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. Well, when he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, young man, you look miserable. Can you imagine that? Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable. 
miserable in this life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like when the bronze serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have looked my eyes off. There, then, the cloud went away. The darkness rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in and of ourselves, we are without hope. We are without hope unless we look to you. Help us to look away from ourselves, Lord. Help us to look only unto you and to look up at the cross. Lord, we thank you for loving us the way you do, for redeeming us, for uh, taking our place on the cross, for taking the full wrath of God when we deserved it. Lord, we praise you for what you've done for us and help us now after believing the gospel Help us to live a life of love for you. Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.